0: Alright, let's see if we can get started here this morning. I want to welcome everybody to the Master's Class here at Life Change Church. Life Change Church. And we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 7, verse 11 through chapter 9, verse 17. Boy, we're we're going to book it today. I may mean, not get done now that we've spent 10 minutes talking about everything else, but that's okay. Uh, but we're going to be doing the flood, part 2. Now... In last week's lesson, we talked about the loading of the ark with the animals as part of the final preparations before the flood, and God was very specific in His instructions to Noah. Now, I'm going to repeat some of what I taught last week just to get us back on the same page so we can finish this up, but we're going to start off in Genesis chapter 7, verse 2, and it says, Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, and the fowls of the air by sevens, and the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. So Noah's commission was to take the animals into the ark. And Noah had already been told in, in verse 19 of chapter 6 to take two of every animal. But here, God adds to those instructions by telling him to take seven of each animal. Kind of clean beast into the ark now what are those extra clean animals for why uh, have seven pairs instead of uh, two on those and they were in anticipation of the new rule after the flood that man would henceforth eat meat but they were also to be used for sacrifices now then God tells us that Noah did according to a Unto all that the Lord had commanded him, so here we see Noah's testimony as the world watch, as the animals came up that old game plank and into the ark and, and Noah didn't have to uh, play Jim Fowler, as I said last week, and wrangle them and, and so forth. They just came, and that was a miracle in the eyes of everybody who was watching and and I can just imagine uh the amazement that everybody had that uh they could get a dog to walk up that gangplank. Man, I can't get a dog to do hardly anything. And so, you know, imagine a lion being told to walk up a gangplank. That lion just walking right on up there with his mate, and no big deal. Yeah, and he sees a lamb and, and doesn't eat him, yeah. So we see Noah's testimony to the world, and yet the world's heart was hardened, and they would not uh, accept what God was doing here. And so then we talked about the hope of Noah. And Noah could not see what was to be the future for him. He just knew that God had promised to take care of him throughout all of this and to protect him. Now, the object of his hope was God's work. He believed in God's promises. He believed that God would do what God said he would do. And the biblical word hope means a favorable and confident expectation or a future certainty that has no element of chance or fate in it. We don't have a hope-so faith. We have a no so faith. And that's what it means to have hope in God. So Noah had no doubt whatsoever that what God had promised he was going to do. Next, we talk about the grace that Noah received from a loving God. Now, grace is the unmerited favor of God. And it is getting something that we do not deserve. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, But if it goes even beyond all of that, why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Well, the scripture tells us the answer to that question. It says it is because Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. It wasn't because he deserved it. It wasn't because his good works outweighed his bad. It was because Noah walked by God. And it was by his faith, that Noah knew what God had told him. He knew it was real. He experienced it as real. He possessed it as something real in his life. And therefore, it was by his faith that Noah walked with God. That's what it means to walk with God by faith. All right. So then we get to God's judgment. We also talked about God's final measure of grace before the coming of God's judgment. Genesis 7.10 says, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Well, this tells us that everyone was in the ark for a full week, and nothing happened. So Noah puts all the animals in and climbs into the ark, and nothing happens. Now, can you imagine crowds sitting outside the ark while Noah's inside there, harassing him and making fun of the whole thing? And again, their hearts were already hardened, and they ignored God's final measure of grace. Now, this also means that for a full seven days, they still had an opportunity to accept God's offer of salvation. They could have climbed on the ark during this time as well, yet they abused his long-suffering, his patience, and his kindness for the last time. That extra week of grace was offered to bring them to repentance. Give them one more chance for repentance. And instead, they condemned Noah and his God. So without a doubt, the people of the time of Noah had treasured up unto themselves wrath against the day of wrath, according to the scriptures, and were ready for the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So next, we see the final dawning of the judgment. That's verses 11 through 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And so the scripture here tells us that on this exact date, God's judgment of man began with the coming of the flood. Now, as I said last week, we're not told that this happened as a slow drizzle that worked itself up into a huge storm or if it began with a loud crash of thunder from the finger of God. But the people who had been ridiculing Noah knew something was changing. They realized something different was happening. Now what we do know is that all of creation above and below the earth arose to do the bidding of the Almighty God pronouncing judgment on an unrepentant man. Verses 17 through 19 says, And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased, and bare up the ark. And it was lifted up above the earth, and the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. The ark went upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. So again, God tells us that the storm of the flood lasted for forty days, that the waters increased and floated the ark. And then he tells us just how deep the waters got. God says, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Now, this means that the waters uh, covered the entire earth. It wasn't a localized flood like a lot of people want to try to say, and that's how some things lived through the flood and, and so forth. But it was not a local event. It was the entire earth. And so the flood was chasing a fleeing race. They were driving men to even higher and higher ground until even the mountain peaks were covered by a distance of 15 cubits. And I said last week that was about 22 and a half feet. So uh, above the very highest mountain that you can think of, 22 feet. The entire earth was covered to that depth, uh, even, above, uh, even above the mountain. So verses 23 and 24 says, And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the earth. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in 150 days. So now notice here it tells us that And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground. So the destruction was total, and only Noah and his family and the animals were saved. So, and then God tells us how long the water stayed. And it says, and the waters prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. Which means that for a full five months, the waters covered the entire earth, all the while, Noah and his family gave thanks to a gracious God for the salvation and the protection that God had given each one of them. So then we get to the paragraph of Noah tarrying or Noah, Noah waiting. So here was Noah. He was safely cocooned in the ark. And it says, and God remembered, verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And God remembered Noah. And every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. And the fountains also of the deep and of the windows of heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. Now notice this tells us something wonderful. It says God remembered Noah. Now of course God can never forget. But it does bring to an image of a loving God caring for his faithful servants. And I can just imagine the feeling of those in that ark wondering how long this was going to last and wondering if God had forgotten them. But oh no, Scripture says God remembered Noah. And then we see that Noah waited while the floods receded. Verse 3 says, And the waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of 150 days, The waters were abated. Now, that means that for 150 days, the waters were slowly ebbing away. As we're going to see, they didn't go away totally yet. They were just starting to abate. And we see that Noah waited until finally the ark rested. So it says, and the ark rested in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. So that means that five months, this 150 days, that was long enough for the ark to get close enough to a mountain and sit on top of the mountain, right? But it didn't mean that the water had gone away. That just means the draft of the boat had gotten to the point where it would reach the ground. Yeah, that's right. Notice again the exact date that is given for when the ark finally touched the ground. It was about five months after the start of the flood. Now, this must have been a joyous day for Noah... And his family, because all all of a sudden they're not uh, getting seasick because the ark's floating all around everywhere, right? So the scripture then tells us that it wasn't until three months after the ark rested that the waters decreased enough for them to even see the tops of the mountains. Next we go from Noah tearing to Noah testing. Verses 6 through 12 of chapter 8, And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. And he also sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. And Then he put forth his hand, and he took her and pulled her unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days. And again he sent forth the dove out of the, dark, out of the earth. And the dove came into to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And then he stayed yet another seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him anymore. So I want you to notice a great spiritual message in this portion of Scripture, and it is a tale of two natures. So after Noah had spent about a year in the ark, he sent forth a raven, and the raven never came back. So why didn't the raven come back? Well, for that answer, you've got to recognize what a raven eats. It feeds on dead bodies. Now, I don't know how many carcasses remained after all the time that had passed. But any that did remain would have been a regular feast for a bird that is described as an unclean bird in scripture. That raven did not return. Why? Because he found what he wanted in the world. Now the next bird that Noah sends out was a dove. And we're told that a dove returned back unto Noah. So why did the dove come back when the raven didn't come back? So the dove is described as a clean bird. And The scripture tells us that the dove brought back information to Noah. It brought back evidence that the dry land was appearing. And then the third time that Noah sent it out, the dove did not return. And by that, Noah knew that the waters of judgment were gone. So what is the spiritual truth that we learn from this part of the scriptures? Well, the Bible teaches that the believer has two natures, an old nature, a carnal nature, and a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So the clean and the unclean are together still. You and I as believers have these two natures. We live in our new nature, but our old nature is still there. And our Lord said in John 3, 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And Paul says in Romans seven eighteen, For I know that in me that is in my flesh or my carnal side dwelleth no good thing for to will is present with me but how to perform that which is good i find not so paul is speaking here of the struggle between the two natures and there is a struggle today between the old nature and the new nature in every believer so the raven went out into a judged world but he found a feast in the dead carcasses because that's the thing he lived on That is the picture of the old nature of a believer. The old nature is like that raven. Now, the old nature loves the things of the world and feasts on them. That is the reason so many people find it difficult to be obedient to the Lord with just the simple things of tithes and offerings. They love the things of the world more than they do the things of God. Now, you can't tell me that you have a good excuse for not tithing unto God. You just can't. What you do have is an old nature, but that is no excuse because you shouldn't be living in that old nature. Now, the dove went out into a judged world, but she found no rest, no satisfaction, and so she returned to the ark. The dove represents the new nature of the believer, and that old raven, he went out into the world and he loved it. What he found was a bunch of old carcasses. And he probably thought the millennium had arrived. He thought he was in hog heaven, man, let me tell you. Now, you see, it is just a matter of perception or viewpoint as to what you're seeing. Yet the believer is told in 1 John two fifteen, Love not the world, nor the things uh, that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so you and I are living in a judged world today. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are to use it, but not abuse it. We are not to fall in love with it, but we are to attempt to win the lost in this world and get out the word of God to those who need to hear it. Now the dove recognized what kind of world she was in, and she found no rest. She found rest only in the ark, and the ark sets forth Christ. So as a believer, just as that dove found rest with Noah in the ark, we find our rest in who? Jesus Christ, right? So let me ask you a question. What kind of bird are you today? Are you a raven or a dove? If you are a child of God, you have both natures, but which one are you living in today? And do you love the things of God or the things of the world? Amen? Amen? Verse 13 says, And it came to pass in the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So now, notice that God tells us, Noah removed the covering of the ark, and look, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So this means that there must have been some type of a tarp or tent-like covering over the ark. I, I don't know what else it could be if it was a covering on the ark. Now, we don't have any other details, but I just found that interesting when I was going through it. that there must have been some kind of covering over the ark, and it survived the entire storm that, that was going on and the flood that was happening. Most of the tarps I put on wouldn't survive that kind of stuff, but this one did. So I, I just find that interesting. Notice that once again, the exact date is given. And on this specific day, what Noah sees is, the ground, is that the ground was dry. Well, now, surely that means they could go out. If the ground is dry, they ought to be able to go out, right? But the answer to that is no. The door to the ark remained closed for another eight weeks. Now, Noah was a man of faith. And he had the faith to walk with God when the people of the earth were ignoring and disobeying God. Now, I'm getting to an answer to a question I was asked to try to answer this week. I'm going to try and give you the best answer that I can here, okay? So why did God not, you know, make the waters go away quicker? Why did everybody have to wait and so forth? But Noah was a man of faith, and he had the faith to walk with God when the people of the world were ignoring and disobeying God. He had the faith to work for God and to witness for God when opposition to the truth was the popular thing to do. Now that the flood was over, he was exercising his faith again to wait. On God before leaving the ark. Now, don't you just know that after being confined in that ark for over a year, he and his family must have yearned to get back on dry ground. But they waited for God's directions. Now, the world looks suitable for them to leave, but obedient faith is our response to God's word. Now, we all know that God is never in a hurry. I tell you uh, from personal experience that I have difficulty often waiting on God's timing rather than my own, right? Uh, But why take so long for the waters to go away? And then why make Noah wait another eight weeks, even beyond that, to leave the ark? Now, surely, God must have uh, just uh, could, or God could have made the waters just disappear just as he did at creation. You know, at creation, he got it done in seven days, right? I mean, the, or just a, less than that. He made the earth come up out of the waters and he made them go back away. So he could have done it just like that. So I believe it is because God wanted all traces of his wrath and destruction to be washed away before they were permitted to come out of the ark. Now, I don't read that anywhere. But that's just what I believe. Can you imagine the death and destruction and the carcasses that would have been on the, on the earth and uh, come out of that at that time and have it be all there for you? I think this was time for God to clean all that up for, for, for Noah. So God rewarded Noah's faith and the faith of his family by caring for them in the ark for over a year and then preparing the earth for them so that they could leave The ark. So Noah was kind of like a second Adam as he uh, made this new beginning for the human race. God brought the earth out of the waters during creation week, preparing it for Adam and Eve, and now he had brought the earth through the flood and made it ready for Noah and his family. So we've seen Noah tearing. And by the way, did did I answer your question as best I could? (laughs) Yes, you did. All right, thank you. All right, that same answer, huh? Okay, good. All right, well, I'm glad I'm right then. (laughs) All right, good. We've seen Noah tearing, and we saw Noah testing, sending the birds out, and now we see Noah trusting. Verses 15 through 19, And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons, and thy sons' wives with thee, and bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl, and, ever, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds went forth out of the earth. So now, uh, notice the words, And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth out of the ark. So here we have it. At last the day came when God commanded Noah to leave the ark. And Notice that he gave Noah and the animals the same command that he had given to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Verses 20 and 22 says, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing, as I have done. While the earth remaineth, sea time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Shall not cease. So God tells us that Noah built an altar unto the Lord. And so the very first thing that Noah did when he got off that ark was to build an altar and to sanctify the new earth by offering up one of every clean beast and fowl in a great burnt offering. And notice that this was not a sin offering. This was an offering that was all for God. The sin offering would come later. This one was for God. And and it was a overflow of a full heart which wished to express appreciation for a salvation offered by a gracious God. So this offering was to say, thank you, God, for saving us. And notice that it says, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said, in his heart. So this tells us that God was pleased with the offering, and in response to Noah's offering, God spoke secretly to himself. It's not too secret, because it's in the Bible now, and it, it tells us everything uh, you know, that was out there. Uh, but it says that he talked to himself. He said, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore every, everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease so here god gives his promise never to destroy the earth again and of course we know that the bible tells us that the next time it's going to be by fire but this is also one of the greatest rebuttals of those who believe in global warming being caused by man and or anything else so god has said that regardless of what man does by the way I put global warming in my post on Facebook and Facebook banned me for it. I had to remove the word global warming from my post or they wouldn't let me have my uh, post out there because I was talking social issues and and so forth. So I had to remove that. But anyway, for those who do believe it, here God said that regardless of what man does, while the earth remaineth, what's going to happen? Seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So the ice age coming, and we're all going to go away because you know, there's not going to be any winter or summer anymore, and they're not going to be able to have food. God says, that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to happen. Now aren't you glad that God is in control rather than man? Amen, right? So next we get to God's covenant with Noah. Now, in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8, we saw that God had spoken secretly to Himself. But now God speaks sovereignly to Noah. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Now, that word replenish is meaningful here because it is the same word that God used with Adam. It is translated from a Hebrew word, "mala." And a literal translation would be to fill the earth. So Noah and the animals were to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And then we get to the Noahic uh, covenant. You gotta remember we did a, a full lesson on all the covenants uh, of the Bible and so forth. And I told you we'd come back and we'd do some more detail on each one because I, I blasted through those uh, like, like nothing. I gave just a short summary. Well, I'm holding my word. We're going to do the Noahic covenant uh, here. And so God sets the uh, terms before Noah of this new agreement that is now to cover life on the new earth. The Noahic covenant reaffirms the conditions of life of a fallen man as announced of the Adamic covenant. It doesn't do away with it. It just adds to it. And it institutes the principle of human government to curb the outbreak of sin. So the elements of the new covenant are, first, the order of nature is confirmed, that man is to have dominion over the animals. Verse 2 says, "In the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. In your hand are they delivered. This verse is telling us that man is to protect and to have rulership over the animal world. Now apparently the animals did not have a fear or a dread of man before the flood, but now they would. So the second element of the New Covenant is the flesh of animals is added to man's diet. Verse 3 says, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So we see that God gives to man a new provision for food. Before the flood, God had given man a green earth, the plant life, to eat. Now he tells Noah that he is able to eat animals, but he conditions it. Verse 4 says, But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. So this is telling us that the blood should be drained out of the meat before you eat it. The blood speaks of life. Draining it indicates the animal should be killed in a merciful way rather than prolonging its suffering and that it must really be dead before you eat it. Now, that third element of the new covenant is that man is responsible to protect and sanctify life by orderly rule over the individual man, even to the point of capital punishment. Verses 5 and 6 says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So here, God is laying down the principle for government and the protection of man. He gives the government the right of capital punishment. So we have seen that this new covenant, which God has given, man is to pro- uh, propagate the race, is to have a protectorate and the rulership over the animals, he has given a new provision for food and a prohibition against the eating of blood. And now we see that he has given the principle of government, which is the basis of capital punishment. and It is a principle that has never been rescinded. Romans 13, 1 through 4 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that, are, uh, the powers that be are ordained of God. Upon him that doeth evil. Now, I believe that capital punishment is scriptural and that it is the basis of government. The government has the right to take a life when that individual has taken someone else's life. Why? It is obvious that God has made this rule in order to protect human life. The principle of whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man is the basis for human government. And it has not been changed as far as the governments of the world are concerned. Now, one of the contributing factors that led up to the flood was the lack of human restraint for crime. Now, if you remember, under the dispensation of conscience that God made with Adam, God placed man under the stewardship of moral responsibility, where he was accountable to do all known good and to abstain from all known evil. But he was responsible to God. No, there was no government he was responsible to. He was just supposed to do all known good and, and abstain from doing all known evil. Well, as you can imagine, everybody decided what that known good and that known evil was of their own. It was what they decided was good and bad, kind of like they do today, right? The man failed that test miserably, and it caused God to judge the world with a flood. So now along with this new covenant came a new dispensation, the dispensation of human government. Now I said uh, before that a dispensation is different from a covenant. It is an error of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience to some definite revelation of God's will. Now they are different from but related to covenants. The study of how God has changed how man approaches God is called dispensationalism. So this new dispensation began when Noah walked off the ark with his family, and mankind began a new slave. He was subjected to a new test, and a new test was to rule righteously. Now in this dispensation, man continued to have a moral obligation directly to God, but he was also to obey God through submission to the human government. Notice that God does not take away the moral obligation to know all good and to abstain from all evil, but he adds to it the requirement to submit to human government that is always under the authority of God. So God is delegating some of his authority in certain areas of human government. And the highest function of the government is to protect human life, out of which arises the responsibility of capital punishment. Now there is no doubt and no question that that man failed this dispensation as as he failed to rule righteously. And both Jew and Gentile have ruled for uh, self rather than of God during this time frame. And this dispensation will last until Christ returns to set up his kingdom. So it's going to last until the millennial kingdom comes. Now, switching back to the Noahic Covenant, we see that the fourth element of the covenant that God made with Noah was that no additional curse is placed on the ground, nor is man to fear another flood. Verses 11 through 17 says, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there anymore be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant, which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. So here, God made this unconditional covenant with Noah. Noah didn't have to do anything to uh, live within this covenant. It was unconditional. And its sign was the rainbow. And the covenant is to last until the renovation of the earth by fire. So this is the covenant that we are still under today. All right, amen.